thank you for getting this teaching series by Pastor David Gardy of Moira Pentecostal Church. For more information, visit www.mpc.org.uk. Come with me please to Psalm 28. Uh, Psalm 28 is as good a place to start as anywhere this morning. Uh, we want to... Well, this morning what we really want to do is wind up uh, this very recent study in prayer entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And uh, this is the twelfth and final part this morning. And in it we have been looking at various aspects of prayer. Uh, we have been talking about uh, intercession, prayer and fasting, prayer and the Word of God, prayer and praise, Prayer and prayer of agreement and things that would hinder prayer and all kinds of subjects relating to prayer. Uh, we looked also at the model prayer where Jesus taught us to pray saying, Our Father. Then, of course, John 17, that great prayer of Christ for the church, uh, we looked at it also. Uh, but this morning, I want to conclude by by simply sharing five reasons why we should pray. Now, there are obviously many more reasons than just five, but in the time allotted to us this morning, five reasons why we should pray. Now, before we go into them, we should pause and ask ourselves the question, why should we pray? Since God is omniscient, since God is all-seeing and all-knowing, since God knows exactly who we are and where we are, why should we pray? Since God is omnipotent, since God is all-powerful and almighty, and He knows our need and He knows how to meet that need exactly and precisely, and He's got the wherewithal to do it, why should we bother to pray? And since God is also um omnipresent, he is everywhere present, then he knows and he sees exactly where you and I are this morning. He knows us intimately. Why should we pray? Well, first of all, and these reasons are not in any order of importance, but first of all, because I believe it changes our perspective of things. Once we begin to pray about someone or something, we enter into another dimension. We put things onto an entirely different level because at that point we are inviting God to become actively involved in that person's life or in that particular uh, situation. And at that moment, we are no longer wholly dependent upon ourselves. We're opening the door to divine intervention. We're saying, oh God, become involved in this person's life or in this situation that I'm talking about. And suddenly all of heaven's resources are at our disposal. All of heaven is at our disposal. We come to the Father in Jesus' name. And now, once we begin to see that, then our perspective 
begins to change. And over and over and over in the Psalms particularly, you see how the psalmist, when he's praying, because many of these Psalms are really cries from his heart, you see how that oftentimes he starts out complaining and he ends up rejoicing. He starts out negatively and ends up positively. And sometimes it's a mixture of the two. He seems to go from one to the other until his perspective begins to change about the situation. And in Psalm 28, uh, we, we can read these really without comment. You can see the, the principle that I'm saying is if we just read it in Psalm 28. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. <clears throat> Do not be silent to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lest if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity. Who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Now you can see that he begins this prayer quite negatively. Uh, I mean, he, he's quite angry and upset, and he's inviting God actually to bring down trouble upon his enemies. He's, sorry, he's, he's really having a bit of a rant here, isn't he? And then he says, in verse 6, notice the change. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. He began by saying, Lord, do not be silent with me. And then he begins now here, he says, but because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him. I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I will praise him. The Lord is their strength. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. And then Psalm 42. <clears throat> As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan and from the heights of Hermon and from the hill Mizar. Deep calls on to deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Notice the way he is going back and forward, isn't he? You know, 
you know, why is my soul disquieting within me? And then he says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. Why they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieting within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And then just quickly over in Psalm 55. In fact, that's a rather a long one, and we need to move on. But you, you get the idea. But you, we'll just end with Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to you, God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God has sent forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are like spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be all above the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. In the midst of it they themselves have fallen. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory. Awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercies reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and let your glory be above the earth. There's no question that whatever situation you find yourself in or whomever you may be praying for, whenever you begin to pray, your, your perspective begins to change because you go to a higher level. You're no longer dependent on yourself. You're looking to God to do something. And your perspective begins to change. Secondly, it enables us to go beyond the earthly and into heavenly realms. There is another world out there, <clears throat> and although it is invisible to us, it is a very real world. In fact, it's more real than this temporary, transient world that we live in. And even though we cannot see it, but we know through Scripture that it is most certainly there. God is in his heaven. We are on the earth, and between heaven and earth there is a spirit world. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul enlightens us, and he tells us that our fight, our wrestling, is not with flesh and blood. It's not with human beings. It is with principalities and powers. It is with spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a hierarchy in the spirit realm. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6, where he goes on to talk about this is why we need to be dressed in the spiritual armor of God. And this is why our fight was not with each other. It is not with other human beings. 
Now, the enemy of our souls uses people often. We saw that even reading the Psalms to come against the children of God. But we must not fight against them because that's not the source of it, even though they may not even know why they're doing it. There is another world out there, a world of wicked and evil spirits and a world of angels. So there is the angelic hosts and there is the demonic hosts and they're there. And this is the world that you and I as believers has got to contend with, particularly when it comes to prayer. Because we've got to break through that and touch the very throne of God and thank God that we can today. And throughout Scripture, the Bible, we see the angelic visitations, we see demonic activity, and we see all of this happening. And this world that we're talking about, this world between heaven and earth, influences greatly influences events upon the face of the earth. And if we allow them, will influence us individually and even corporately as churches. So we must be aware of it. It's not my subject this morning. We have gone into it several times in the past, but you're aware of it. Uh, but in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we were preaching in 2 Kings 6, uh, in that situation where Elisha the prophet and how that the king of Syria had come against the king of Israel and how that God was showing Elisha the prophet uh, the very words. He was hearing the very words that the king of Syria was speaking in his bedroom, the plans he was making against Israel. And the prophet would tell the king of Israel and so that they wouldn't come to pass. And the king of Syria got to hear about this and he thought it was spies within the camp. And they said, no, my Lord, it is the prophet in Israel. It's Elisha. He actually knows what you're speaking in your bedroom. And he sent a great army to Dothan where Elisha was, a great and mighty army for one single person. And how the morning when they surrounded the city, you remember how the young servant went out, his, Elisha's helper and prodigy, he went out there and, and all he saw was the enemy round about and he says, Alas, master, what shall we do? And you remember what Elisha said? Elisha prayed and says, O Lord, open his eyes. And let him see. Basically, let him see what I can see. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw all around about the fiery chariots of God. He saw a mighty angelic host of angel warriors. <laughs> and his eyes was opened, and he could see into that other world. And of course, you know the story how there was a tremendous victory uh, against uh, Syria. And they ended up going back with their tails be firmly between their legs. Uh, and so we, we see uh, how that world is very real and how it influences. And there's one particular chapter in the Bible above all chapters that gives us a great insight into this very, very thing. And you'll find it in Daniel uh, chapter 10. <clears throat> In Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And that was his Babylonian name that they gave him. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. And in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, 
nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So he was fasting and he was praying. That's what they called the Daniel fast, by the way. It wasn't a full fast, but he ate no pleasant food and had no dainties. He just had enough nourishment to keep him going. But now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river that is Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Ophaz. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and when I saw this great vision, I had no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. How often have you and I prayed maybe even fasted. And seemingly nothing happened. You get up the next day, the situation was the same, or in fact it was maybe even worse. And you thought, God, have I wasted my time and energy? Did you even hear that prayer? God, did you not see it even fasted? I feel nothing, I see nothing, nothing's changed. But that's only because we can see the natural world. We don't know what's going on behind that veil. This is what happened to Daniel. From the very first time you prayed that prayer, the angel said, God heard you. And now I've come because of those words. But notice here the reason of the delay. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now this is not a human prince or a king. This is this great evil, wicked spirit that was over that area of Persia (coughs) that was influencing that evil and wicked nation against the people of God. And that great wicked evil spirit was resisting even the mighty angel. Gabriel will believe this to be the messenger angel. So it shows you there's a lot of power there, isn't there? But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Michael is the warring angel. He came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. 
And when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one, having the likeness of the sons of men, touched my lips and opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. This is another great spirit that's now going to be controlling the Grecian empire. But I tell you what is, not, what is noted in the scripture of truth. And no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And so you see that whenever you begin to pray... It enables us to go beyond the earthly into heavenly realms. Now, I'm not talking about us physically doing this. I'm not talking about us being transported physically, although that happened in the Bible. I'm talking about spiritually. Remember the New Testament says that we are already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a spiritual thing I'm talking about. And so our prayers are the vehicles that transport us from the earthly to the heavenly. And our prayers penetrate through that world right to the very throne room of Almighty God because we have got an entrance. Christ is our mercy seat and he is our door into heaven. And so when the Father bids us come, we come in prayer believing but we also know there's a world out there that would try to hinder and thwart and plot and plan against the people of God. But thank God that we have got an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, and thank God we've got an advocate in earth, the Holy Spirit, who resides within us. So our prayers will penetrate and our prayers will go to the throne of God. And then thirdly, it helps us to know the mind of God. Now, we need to know the mind of God, don't we? We need to know his voice. We need direction. We need guidance. We need favor. And prayer enables us to begin to know the mind of God. It's whenever Daniel prayed and fasted during that period, it was then that God heard that prayer and sent the answer. Now, there was that period of waiting, and we've seen the reason why. But he found out the mind of God. And it was for his nation. It was for his people. And even though it was a prophetic word, and even though it was for generations, for centuries later, in fact, some of the stuff God revealed to Daniel when we studied the book of Revelation, it hasn't even happened yet. It's even far into the future yet. But nevertheless, in our situations, and how we need to know the mind of God, and we need direction and guidance, let's not underestimate the power of prayer to do that for us. Because if we're humble before God and we're genuinely seeking His will and His purposes and nothing else, then He will give it to us. 
He'll find a way to speak to us and show us and give us the direction that we need. We find in Acts chapter 13, in fact, Acts 13 and verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And as they ministered unto the Lord and fasted, as they sought God, as they prayed, as they worshipped, as they took time out, as they said, Lord, we need your mind in this. We need to know what to do. We need to know whom to send. Lord, we want your men. We want your anointing. We want your understanding. We want to ordain the right people. And as they did that, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, here's two. I've called these two. Separate them for the work that I have called them unto. And so, we get to know the mind of God as we wait upon the Lord and as we pray. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 12, you remember the Lord told the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until they had been endued with power from on high? Well, Acts 1 and 12, when then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Now, during that 10 days, if you read on, there's just a little bit of business had to be attended to. Judas had gone out and hung himself. One more had to be elected to fulfill the 12 apostleship. And Matthias was the one that was drawn by Lot. But during that 10 days, the bulk of it, the most of it was prayer time. That's what they did. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they watched and they watched and they waited and they waited. And they stopped everything. Nothing was more important to them than being in that room praying. Now, as I've often said when I share about this, understand they did not know how long they were going to be there. Jesus said, until you be endued with power from on high. He didn't say stay there to the day of Pentecost, because then they would have known exactly how long that was. But they didn't. They might have been there one day, they might have been there a month. They did not know. What they did know was, we're going to stay until we are endued with power from on high. That's all they knew. That's what they determined to do, and thank God they did that. And they started to pray. Now notice how many was there. There was a 120 there. I find this fascinating. And yet it's fairly representative. Because it tells us that when Christ rose again from the dead, and Paul writes about this in Corinthians, and he says, above 500 of the brethren saw him. Above 500 of the brethren saw him. 
Where were they? There's only 120 here. Where were all the believers? Where are all the people that saw Jesus raised from the dead who believed? Where were they? There's only 120. Is it not true that the vast majority of church-going people does not ever, ever, ever go to a prayer meeting? Is that not true? Only 120. Where was the rest? And that was the 500 that actually saw him. What about all the ones that got the miracles and believed when they saw him in the flesh? <laughs> but nevertheless, 120 it was, and they met. Notice it says, and the women were there too. If this was in our day, we'd say, and the men were there too. <laughs> the men were here. And the woman too. Something's changed since those days. I notice, if I can use the word, it was the leaders and the laity. The leaders were there. And everybody else was there. Notice, it would be mature believers like the apostles, and new believers. You can be sure within this 120, there'll be some new believers, keen as mustard, as we would say. And sometimes new believers are the keenest ones. Notice here there were families. At least Mary and her sons were there. So there was families there. different personalities there. Couldn't get any different than Peter and John. <laughs> you couldn't get any different than Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew the Roman collaborator, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, the loyalist. You couldn't get any different than that. But God had done a tremendous work in their hearts and they were at the prayer meeting. And by the way, Mary was there. That's the last mention of Mary in Scripture. She's never, ever mentioned again after that. But she was there. And it was with prayer and supplication. I remember we explained that petition prayer is general prayer. Supplication is specific. And sometimes our prayers are general because we might not know enough to be specific. But other times they're very focused and very pinpoint and we know what to pray for and we know who we're praying for and we know the situation. So we had all kinds of prayer even here. And whenever they prayed in that upper room and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed until they were changed, until they had endowment of power. And they went out from that room and suddenly Peter stands up to preach and what a sermon he preaches. It is absolutely peppered with Scripture from one end to the other. Suddenly, his whole enlightenment of Scripture began to light up. You know, it's almost as if he could now see it. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the author of Scripture, by the way. And whenever you're struggling to understand Scripture, ask the Holy Spirit, who's the author of Scripture. He wrote it. It's God breathed this book and ask him to open our eyes that we may see and understand. And suddenly Peter could see the purpose of God, the will of God. He could see what the gospel meant. He could see everything. You know, it was a bit of a struggle for them, but when the Holy Spirit came, they could, they could see. 
And so we begin to know the mind of God. On Easter Monday, 1952, Duncan Campbell, who was a Free Church of Scotland minister, he was sitting in the Faith Mission Convention in Bangor, County Down. He had finished preaching uh, that day and sat down on the platform with the other speakers, sat beside the chairman. And as he sat there quietly, he heard this voice saying, Bernard Ray. So he put his head down, became very quiet. A moment or two later, he heard the word again, Bernard Ray. So he prayed. And again, the word came, just one word, Bernaray. He said to the chairman, he said, uh, the Holy Spirit's just told me to go to Bernaray. Chairman said, you can't do that. You're due to speak here tomorrow. He says, I know, but the Holy Spirit just told me to go to Bernaray. What must I do? Chairman says, well, if the Holy Spirit's spoken, you must go. So he walked straight off the platform, went to his hotel, packed his bags, went to the airport, said, I, I want to go to Bernaray, which was in the Outer Hebrides. He said, I'm sorry. He says, there's no flights to there. He says, well, where's the nearest flight to? Or where's the flight nearest to there? He says, well, I'll get you on that flight. So he arrived with these two big suitcases, looked around, there was nobody there. It was quite near where the shore was the sea, and he walked down to the shore, he saw a fisherman, he said, excuse me, he said, I need to get to Bernaray, how do I get there? He says, there's no way to get there. There's no normal transportation there. He says, well, how does people get there? He says, they get by boat. He says, well, will you take me? And so they, they uh, quibbled over price, and they got the price, it just so happened to be the exact money he had in his pocket. So he got to Bernaray. Now, understand that he'd never been there before. He didn't know a single soul there on this island. And understand that nobody had written to him to come. Now, you need to know also that Duncan Campbell was the man that God used mightily in the Hebrides to bring revival to the Hebrides in the 50s and 60s. And so, <laughs> the boatman lifts him off. He has to climb a hill to see anything or anywhere. And he looks down and he sees a farmer in the field. So he trudges down with the big suitcases, plants them down in the plowed field, sits on exhausted now. He calls the farmer over and he says, excuse me, he says, could you go to the nearest pastor in the church here and tell them that Duncan Campbell has arrived? He says, there is no pastor in the church. We haven't had one for a long time. He says, have you got an elder in the church? Yes, I've got an elder. Go and tell the elder Duncan Campbell has arrived. So he says, he looked at him kind of strange looking, headed off. Seen the elder and says, Duncan Campbell has arrived. Wonderful, he said. I've been expecting him. <laughs> In fact, the farmer came back and he says, let me take your cases. I'll take you to the elder. He's expecting you. In fact, he says, he's got the meetings arranged and you're starting at nine tonight. And what he didn't know was that three days before this, that elder was praying, he was a farmer, he was praying in his barn. Oh God, he says, send revival to this island. I don't know where Duncan Campbell is, but wherever he is, you know where he is. Send them here. We need revival. And God spoke to Duncan Campbell. And he started that night old meetings. And they had a wonderful revival. 
a wonderful revival because one man prayed and God heard that one man's prayer and spoke to another man in another nation to go. Never underestimate the power of your prayers that God may reveal his heart and his purposes to you. Fourthly, we'll go quickly. It keeps us living in dependence upon God. Prayer is an acknowledgement that we need God. That we cannot do it on our own. He is the vine, we are the branches. Without him we can do nothing. So we need prayer. We need to be dependent upon God. Now, I'm talking about true prayer. I'm talking about prayer that is not prideful, that's humble. Not like the Pharisee in the temple who thanked God he wasn't like other men. He was just so full of stinking pride that God refused him. But true prayer that's humble, that says, God, without you I am nothing. I can do nothing. I cannot do anything that's lasting and worthwhile for the kingdom of God. Can't do it without your strength and without your help. God, you are in charge of my life. You are the Lord of my life. Have your way in my life. Do with me what you want done. And when you begin to pray those types of prayer, then God will move and he'll do it. And he'll do it through you. But it keeps us living in dependence upon God. All of us have a tendency to be selfish and self-absorbed. All of us do. All of us have a tendency to put ourselves first. It's our human fallen nature that does that. And even in God's work, we do it. And if we're not very careful, even, and I speak to myself as a pastor, if we're not very careful, we find, well, I can do this. But the reality is we may be able to go through the motions of doing it, but it don't touch anybody's life unless we're fully dependent on him and his grace and his anointing and his mercy and his compassion, whatever it is we need to be. So it keeps us living in dependence upon God. And then fifthly and finally, it impacts the life of others. Only eternity will reveal the countless lives that has been impacted because somebody prayed. Nations were changed. Cities have been changed. Families and individuals have been totally changed. Revivals have begun simply because somebody somewhere prayed. Told you the other week, four young men in a winter time locked themselves into that old schoolhouse in Kells, County Antrim, and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for this nation to God sent revival. And with the 1859 revival, the greatest revival that Ireland has ever seen. Four young men prayed until God moved. It doesn't take a lot. 120 change the whole world. It doesn't take a lot. 
but it takes people who are serious and dedicated. You and I, I venture to say, every single one of us are sitting here today because somebody somewhere prayed for you. Somebody <laughs> prayed for you. Mom or dad, granny, granda, uncle, aunt, cousin, friend, somebody at work, a mate. Somebody prayed for you and that's why you're sitting here today. Thank God for people who prays for people. I hope that you pray for your family. I hope there's people that you pray for every single day. And I know that as we started this, I announced and said that I wanted six people to pray for me every single day. And I've got more than six now. Thank God for that. More than six people has come and said, David, I promise I will pray for you every single day. And I said to them all, I says, well, if you forget a day or something happens, we're not going to be legalistic about it. Don't want you to be condemned. But please continue to do that because we definitely need your prayers. Susanna Wesley had 17 children. Boy, that's a big family, isn't it? That's a tribe, isn't it? 17 children. Imagine trying to rear 17 kids. How do you do that? I mean, it would just your head would be astray, wouldn't it? Huh? And do you know what? Every day she prayed for them for one hour. She'd put her apron over her head. And when the apron over the head, the kids knew not to say anything. Don't bother mom, she's praying. Every single day. And two of her boys... To her boys, John and Charles Wesley, made such an impact in Great Britain. They changed the history of Great Britain. Because when God raised those two men up and the power of God swept the nation, at the same time France was going through a bloody revolution where thousands were dying. That could have happened in Britain too. But her two sons, she had many more, but those two especially, God raised up. And Methodism, after 250 years, is still around the world today. I think it's 250 years, maybe next month actually, since John Wesley preached outside the Church of Ireland up there. Because it was an established church, then they wouldn't let him in because he had been Church of Ireland. In fact, they didn't like him very much and they wouldn't let him in, so he preached on the gravestone outside. And then a very wealthy person just up in the domain, who lived in the domain, opened their door for him and he came back. I think he'd maybe been here about three times preaching in this area. And there's Methodist churches all over. There's at least two of them in Lurgan, isn't there? And uh, there's one in Moir. They're, they're everywhere. They're different nations of the world. And it all started by one woman, one woman praying. What an impact. Can you imagine the millions and millions and millions and millions of people over these generations that's been touched by Methodism? And it all started with one wee woman praying in her house with her apron over her head. Never underestimate the powers of your prayers. I'm going to read this in closing. Picture an old woman with a halo of silvered hair, the hot tears flowing down her furrowed cheeks, her worn hands busy over a washboard in the room of poverty, 
in a room of poverty, praying for her son, John. John, who had run away from home in his teens to become a sailor. John, of whom it was now reported that he had become a very wicked man, praying, praying always that her son might be of service to God. The mother believed in two things, the power of prayer and the reformation of her son. God answered the prayer by working a miracle in the heart of John Newton. John Newton, the sailor preacher, among the thousands of men and women he brought to Christ was Thomas Scott, cultured, selfish, and self-satisfied. But because of the washtub prayers, another miracle was worked, and Thomas Scott used both his pen and his voice to lead thousands of unbelieving hearts to Christ. Among them was a dyspeptic, melancholic young man, William Cooper, by name. He too was washed in the cleansing blood, and in a moment of inspiration wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. And that song has brought countless thousands to the man who died on Calvary. All this resulted because a mother took God at his word and prayed that her son's heart might become as white as the soap suds in the washtub. Do you believe that your prayers, your prayers, not somebody else's, your prayers can impact the lives of others? Because if you don't believe that, you might as well not bother to pray. But if you do believe that, if you believe that your prayers can touch a life, then don't stop praying and never give up praying for that person. God can immeasurably change a life because you prayed. Amen. So, our series has ended. I, 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 listen, I, we could go on and have that series twice as long and you still wouldn't exhaust it. We never even got around to the great prayers of the great men of God and women in the Bible. We never even got around to that. But I just feel that we've said what we need to say for now. So even though the series has ended, the prayers haven't ended. Sure they haven't. And the prayer meeting hasn't ended either. Sure it hasn't. And whenever we get all this Easter drama over, it's because I know you're wiped out and you're coming out two or three times why we stopped our cell groups. You're just, you can do no more. Only so many nights a week you've got. But whenever this is over, then we really, really need to get back to prayer and the prayer meeting because whenever we started this series, the prayer meeting was building up lovely. really was. We had more people than ever before. But then because of the pressure of everything we're doing, it kind of dissipated, but we're going to start back again, aren't we? Because corporate prayer is a wonderful thing. really is a wonderful thing. And we need to do it for His glory and to change people's lives. Amen. And to get those breakthroughs that we desperately need from God. We need breakthroughs, don't we, church? Absolutely. So let's do that. Amen. Thank you for getting this teaching series by Pastor David Gowdy of Moira Pentecostal Church. For more information, visit www.mpc.